Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 15th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We'll begin with the mini-editorial, which is written by Joanne Steckelberg of Sioux City. And Joanne writes, So not only did the school district waste $1.3 million on space that is now going to be closed, but it sounds that the kids got a crappy education to boot. Real good use of taxpayer money. Way to go, school board. Again, this was written by Joanne Steckelberg of Sioux City. And now for the five-day forecast. Today will be mostly cloudy and mild with a high of 39 and a low tonight of 36. Monday will be a little bit of snow and rain at times with a high of 38 and a low of 27. Tuesday will have clouds with a high of 32 and a low of 24. Wednesday will have considerable clouds, snow at night with a high of 32 and a low of 20. And Thursday will be cloudy with a high of 30 and a low of 14. Our top story today on the front page is written by Nick Hytrek of the Sioux City Journal. And the headline is, Pipelines Take to Courts to Gain Access for Surveys. Denied access to survey, some parcels of land along proposed liquid carbon dioxide pipeline routes, developers have sought rulings from Iowa judges ordering landowners to allow the surveys to proceed. New lawsuits in Clay and Sioux counties were filed in December, bringing the total number to nine filed by either Summit Carbon Solutions or Navigator Heartland Greenway. In all cases, the companies are seeking injunctions to prohibit landowners from denying survey crews entrance to their land to study the proposed pipeline routes. Landowners have filed counterclaims in many of them, arguing that Iowa's laws giving pipeline companies the right of entry to private land to survey and examine it are unconstitutional. Both are tactics seldom seen before in Iowa. State law clearly authorizes enforcement of survey access by a company by injunction, said Don Tormey, a spokesman for the Iowa Utilities Board, which receives and rules on permit applications for underground pipelines. However, to the IUB's knowledge, lawsuits by pipeline companies to gain access to a landowner's property to survey have been rare in the past. If a landowner resists surveying, the issue is usually addressed without litigation, Tormey said. Tormey said the IUB has no information on the number of landowners refusing to let surveys onto their land, either now or during past pipeline projects. He said the length of the proposed CO2 pipelines and the large number of landowners affected may be a factor. Navigator plans to build a 1,300-mile pipeline collecting liquid CO2 from ethanol plants and fertilizer processors in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Illinois, and transport it to a site in Illinois where it will be injected deep beneath the surface. The pipeline would stretch 900 miles across 36 Iowa counties, including several in Siouxland. Summit's plans call for a 2,000-mile pipeline collecting CO2 from ethanol plants in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, and North Dakota, and piping it to a North Dakota injection site. Of the 30 Iowa counties in the route, many again are in Siouxland. Permit applications for both are before the IUB. 
Both projects have staunch opponents, evidenced by landowners' unwillingness to allow surveyors on their property. Navigator filed lawsuits against landowners in Woodbury, Clay, and Butler counties in August. Summit sued in Dickinson, Hardin, and Coseth counties in September, and Clay and Sioux counties on December 15th. In its suits and requests for injunctions, Summit say landowners have refused to accept delivery of a second letter providing notice of the intent to enter their property to survey it. While Summit Carbon Solutions is not able to comment on the specifics of pending litigation, it's important to note the overwhelming majority of survey work done to this point has involved the owner voluntarily offering the company permission to access their land. There have been a limited number of instances where Iowa law has been invoked to allow this critical work to continue, Summit said in a statement. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, Navigator's Vice President of Government and Public Affairs, also noted the majority of landowners have granted surveyors access. What we don't hear about is how much survey work was done voluntarily, she said. Surveys are an incredibly important part of the process. We think the code and the law is pretty clear as to notification and the steps to complete that survey. We truly want to be collaborative and follow the letter of the law. Lawmakers who are resisting have banded together, hiring attorneys and coordinating their opposition. It's likely due in part to experiences with the Dakota Access Oil Pipeline, which was completed in 2017 and traverses many of the same counties in the paths of the proposed CO2 pipelines, said Jess Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator of the Sierra Club Iowa Chapter. In many cases, crop yield loss because of soil disruption from pipeline installation has been greater than what farmers were told to expect by Dakota Access, and the payments from the company have not made up for the losses. With that information in hand, farmers are less likely to willingly give permission to have their land disturbed, much less survey, Mazor said. Everyone's prepared this time, and they're, not, and they're saying, not again, she said. The filing of lawsuits, however, caught opponents by surprise, Mazur said, but has solidified opposition too. It just made people upset and even more steadfast in their opposition, she said. If they're really just going to sue anyone who gets in their way, what kind of business practice is that? And do we want those kinds of companies in Iowa? Vicki and William Halsey of Mobile, Iowa, were sued by Navigator in August after refusing to allow surveyors onto their land in northern Woodbury County. They responded with the claim that Iowa's laws giving pipelines the right to enter their land are unconstitutional. A judge in September denied Navigator's request for an injunction that would have enabled surveyors to enter the Halsey's land. A trial is scheduled for February 14th, though that same judge is considering Navigator's motion for summary judgment seeking a ruling in its favor before trial. A trial in Navigator's lawsuit against Martin Koenig of Sioux Rapids, Iowa, is scheduled for April 19th in Clay County. The Butler County cases were consolidated and scheduled for trial in May. Vicki Halsey told the journal last fall, she and other landowners are doing what they believe is right and want others to know they're not powerless against the pipeline companies. I just want to be an example that you can stand up for yourself, Halsey said. You can stand up and say, no, this is my land. Summit's lawsuits have yet to be scheduled for trial. Dennis and Carrie King of Dickens in Clay County and Wilmer Holstein Revocable Trust in Sioux Center in Sioux County have yet to respond to the suits. And now we have more on the pipeline with the article called Pipeline to Prosperity. 
Backed by one of Iowa's biggest industries and opposed by a coalition of environmental activists and landowners, carbon capture pipelines have been making headlines and filling meeting rooms for more than a year in Iowa. Three pipeline projects are proposed in Iowa, representing more than 1,500 combined miles of pipeline that would crisscross the state and send carbon dioxide to sequestration sites in North Dakota and Illinois. Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Express would stretch 680 miles across 29 counties, concentrated in western and northern Iowa, but dipping as far south as Story County. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline is the most modest, covering four counties. Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway, the largest of the three, would stretch around 900 miles from the northwest corner of the state in Lyon County to the southeast corner in Lee, with offshoots going through north central and eastern counties. Both Navigator and Wolf's pipelines would end up in Illinois, where they would sequester carbon dioxide captured at ethanol plants deep underground. Summit's pipeline endpoint would be in North Dakota. Before any carbon is pumped into the ground, the companies need to gain approval from regulatory agencies across several states, including the Iowa's Ut- Iowa Utilities Board. They face heavy skepticism from the members of the public, landowners in the path of proposed pipelines, and environmental advocates. While there are millions of miles of natural gas pipelines in the United States, CO2 pipelines are relatively new, with about 5,000 miles operational. But the fledging industry may be on the verge of explosive growth, spurred on by political and financial incentives. Some environmental organizations, like Citizens Climate Lobby, point to carbon capture and sequestration as key components in lowering greenhouse gas emissions and slowing climate change. President Joe Biden's administration, too, has gotten behind the technology as part of his climate agenda. The pipeline companies can take advantage of federal tax credits for carbon sequestration, which were bumped up in the recent Inflation Reduction Act. Carbon capture companies can receive $85 for every metric ton of carbon sequestered. Those credits also can be received as a district pay- a direct payment and transferred to third party for cash payment. Other environmental groups are skeptical of their climate impacts, like the Sierra Club, which is leading the charge against the pipelines in Iowa. The group contends that CO2 pipelines will prop up ethanol, an industry that relies on fossil fuels, when alternative energies like wind and solar are the best ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. While climate concerns are one reason carbon pipelines could be lucrative, perhaps the biggest motivator for the projects in Iowa is keeping the ethanol industry afloat. All of the projects will connect to ethanol manufacturers to shuttle their CO2 underground. The Summit Pipeline would connect to 12 ethanol manufacturers in Iowa. Backers say it will reduce their carbon intensity by as much as 50%. Across its whole length, Summit says the pipeline will sequester 12 million metric tons of CO2 a year. In addition to our program, the continued use of more wind and solar resources, efficiencies in the supply chain, you could actually see ethanol being net zero fuel source by the end of the decade, said Jesse Harris, a spokesperson from Summit. And for ethanol manufacturers, sequestering carbon is a matter of life and death, said Iowa Renewable Fuels Association Executive Director Monty Shaw. Several states have low carbon fuel standards, which require a 
fuel's carbon intensity to below a certain threshold to be sold. Without a pipeline system, Shaw said, Iowa's ethanol plants would not be able to compete with plants in other states that are connected to pipelines, and production would have to be shipped out of state. Iowa is responsible for 30% of all of U.S. ethanol production, according to the Iowa Corn Growers Association. Iowa's ethanol plants have a production capacity of more than 4 billion gallons annually. For ethanol manufacturers, the prospect of reducing carbon and fighting climate change is not the driving force. It's about staying in business. Our members probably have lots of different viewpoints on that. It's immaterial, Shaw said. What does a business do? They supply products that their customers want. Being hooked up to a sequestration pipeline also makes an ethanol producer eligible for a federal tax credit based on its carbon intensity. The credit could translate to as much as 50 or 60 cents a gallon for ethanol producers, Shaw said. If plants in Iowa are not allowed to participate in projects that sequester carbon and they don't pull some of other rabbit out of their hat that I'm not aware of right now, I would assume that they would be out of business in the next four to five years, he said. Jessica Mazur, the conservation program coordinator for the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club, said money should be spent on low carbon energy like wind and solar rather than low lowering ethanol's carbon intensity. When ethanol was pitched to us, it's this renewable fuel, so it's green, she said, and now all of a sudden we're saying it's so dirty we need to capture its emissions, so which one is it? Mazor, like many other climate activists, is skeptical of the climate effects of carbon sequestration. They're about making a lot of money through those federal tax credit programs at the expense of actual solutions that are much cheaper and we know work, she said. The prospect of using eminent domain to secure right-of-way for pipelines has animated a wide group of landowners against the projects. Eminent domain, granted by the U.S. Constitution and state law, allows the government to take private property for projects that benefit the public, like highways and utilities. The Iowa Utilities Board is in charge of granting eminent domain and has granted it seven times since 2000, according to board documents. Summit Carbon Solutions, which is furthest along in the process, has filed documents indicating an intent to use eminent domain along its pipeline's path, but has frequently changed its request as it secures voluntary easements with landowners. Summit has obtained easements from 60% of the landowners along the route in Iowa, said Harris, the Summit spokesperson. While the company is filing the documents to prepare for eminent domain, Harris said, its focus is entirely on negotiating agreements right now. Eminent domain is part of the regulatory process when it comes to pipeline systems, he said. I want to be perfectly clear that it's not been used at all during the course of this process just yet. I think it's entirely premature to be talking about this. Summit is the only company of the three that has filed documents indicating an interest in eminent domain. Representatives for Wolf Carbon Solutions, which is eyeing a pipeline in four eastern Iowa counties, have said the company does not intend to use eminent domain for its project. We have never used eminent domain in our collective careers, not just at Wolf, but in any prior company, said Nick Knoppinger, vice president at Wolf Carbon, and we don't intend to use it for this project. Pipeline opponents say the projects proposed by private corporate entities should not be granted the right of eminent domain. Stop the granting of eminent domain, Red Oak landowner John Norris said at a hearing at, of the board in December. It's dangerous territory to allow private companies to seize our land to use for their personal gain. 
Summit and Navigator also have entered legal action against several landowners who refuse to allow access to their land to employees for surveying. Iowa law allows pipeline companies to enter private land for surveying after giving 10 days notice by mail to the landowners. The entry is not deemed a trespass according to the law. The companies in their lawsuit said they sought permission to enter the land and were denied, and were de again denied after providing notice. They are seeking an injunction to enter the properties. In court documents, a lawyer representing the landowners has argued the law granting pipeline companies access to land is unconstitutional, which the company's lawyers deny. With regulatory hurdles in place, it's unclear when construction on pipelines would begin. Summit, which is closest to receiving a permit, hopes to begin construction in late 2023. We are going through the regulatory process, so there's a mix of federal permits we need to secure, state permits, and also some local permits as well we need to work through, and we're working through that process. The IUB is in the process of scheduling a hearing for Summit, which the company hopes to begin in March. Others, though, argued the hearing should begin later. The hearing would likely last several days and involve evidence, witnesses, and expert testimony to help the board make a decision on permitting the project. The South Dakota Public Utilities Commission suggested it would hold a hearing on the project sometime next September or as late as 2024. Mazor said she hopes the Sierra Club and other opponents will be able to stop construction of the projects entirely. Because these pipelines touch on so many issues, whether it's safety, the use of public money, the precedent-setting use of eminent domain, land destruction, and climate change, it's bringing together a really powerful, never-seen-before coalition of people saying, this just isn't right for Iowa, she said. We'll now move to the opinion page, and we'll begin with a, a journal editorial. Uh, the headline is, Woodbury County Supervisor Should Serve on Law Enforcement Center Board. Former Woodbury County Supervisor Rocky DeWitt remains on the county city board that governs the county's new law enforcement center, even though he now serves in the Iowa Senate. We would recommend the supervisors reconsider their unanimous decision last week to allow DeWitt to complete his term on the LAC Authorities Board. DeWitt has, had been the only supervisor on the three-member board, which also includes Chair Ron Rick and City Councilman Dan Moore. At last week's meeting, the supervisors were quick to point out that the authority's bylaws do not require that a current supervisor sit on the LAC board. Though that's technically true, we believe county taxpayers would be better served if one continued to do so. At the time the authority was formed in 2019, it was widely believed that Moore and DeWitt would keep their respective elected boards up to speed with what was happening with the LEC and the jail project, giving regular reports to the Council and Board of Supervisors respectively. With DeWitt now spending much of his time in Des Moines, focusing on his legislative duties, achieving that goal will undoubtedly be more difficult. At last week's supervisors meeting, Chairman Matthew Ung argued DeWitt should stay on the LEC board at least until the new jail is completed because he has institutional knowledge of the project. Wick argued it would be difficult for a newly appointed commissioner to catch up with what's been happening with the project. We believe those are not valid reasons for refusing to appoint a different supervisor to the post. They all already have knowledge of the project and would be more than qualified to become the county's voice with the authority. One hang-up in going in that route could be that the authority bylaws required that at least one commissioner live outside the county seat of Sioux City. As a rural Lawton resident, DeWitt checks that route. 
it appears none of the four remaining supervisors would meet that requirement. But that could change once the board appoints DeWitt's successor on the five-member board. Because supervisors are required to live in the districts in which they represent, why not also appoint the new member to the LAC board? Applications for the vacant District 3 seat are due January 18th, with interviews to be conducted January 23rd. Ong has said DeWitt could be removed from the authority board by two-thirds vote by the supervisors at any time. That's the direction the supervisors should take once they decide who would be best to complete his current LAC term, which runs through December 2027. We'll now move to the um, letters to the editor. Our first one is from Joanne Fox of Sioux City, and Joanne writes, Congratulations to reporter Nick Hytrek on the three-day, well-crafted piece of journalism explaining the suicide by cop story concerning the shooting death of Michael Meredith. I know how much time and effort was expended to put it all together, including the supporting stories to better understand the circumstances surrounding the tragic events that took place in January 2022. Also, thanks to all those who provided insights to help readers better understand mental health issues, the police response, and the court-ordered voluntary-involuntary committal. This is a community journalism at its best. Again, this was written by Joanne Fox of Sioux City. Our next letter is written by Larry Jessup of Sioux City, and he writes, I disagree with the plan for the conversion of 6th Street to a three-lane road. It's a major artery through downtown and constricting it would cause rush hour backups and delays. Also, from the bicycle standpoint, a better street to do this would be 4th Street. It's a flat, easy ride through downtown. Anyone on a bicycle would detour to 4th Street anyway at Floyd Boulevard or Court Street. Who is really going up that big hill to Mercy on a bike anyway? Keep 6th Street for auto traffic. Three lanes would be a rush hour mess. Divert bicycle and pedestrian traffic to 4th Street. It's flat from Lewis and beyond all the way to Wesley Way. Again, this letter was written by Larry Jessup of Sioux City. The next letter is written by Rhonda Capron, a former Sioux City Council member. The Arena Hess Foundation has indicated it would take on the lease from the city for the Riverside Sports Complex and all financial obligations, including hiring a full-time field manager. Depending on need, they would give Westside Little League free field space. Westside Little League doesn't have a budget to do this. The foundation has the financial ability plus staffing expertise to maintain the fields and grow the program. No one will be left out. Westside Little League and the Siouxland Youth Association will flourish. SYA, or the Siouxland Youth Association, has 53 teams, almost 600 softball players, who play on these fields. The Arena Hess Foundation only wants to help Jessica Jones-Sitzman grow the SYA softball program to bigger heights. Jessica has been involved in softball her whole life. She has the expertise, knowledge, and grit to make this a first-class complex. She can add additional program, programming not only for softball players but also youth baseball. At the end of the day, there is no reason for this to be so contentious. The logical choice is for the Arena Hess Foundation to manage the fields, given their proven track record of financial stability and expertise in hosting tournaments, as well as a proven track record of being willing to successfully work with many entities in the community. This partnership between the Arena Hess Foundation and the city would have a huge economic impact on the city. 
Tournaments bring in families who travel to play ball, staying at hotels, shopping, eating, and seeing our great city. The Westside Little League would have the best of both worlds. They would have the fields for the programs and a paid full-time field manager. Plus, Arena Hess Foundation has the financial means to make the fields first class. This is a win-win for the community and the city of, of Sioux City. Thanks to Mike Hess and Dustin Cooper. We appreciate all you do. And this letter again was written by Rhonda Capron, former Sioux City Council member. Our next article is written by one of the Sunday regulars, Steve Warnstead, who is a government affairs coordinator for Western Iowa Tech Community College. He is a former Democratic state senator and a retired Army National Guard Brigadier General. He and his wife Mary are the parents of one son and one daughter. His article today has the headline of Education Policy Should Help Not Hinder Self-Improvement. Education policies should help, not hinder self-improvement. And these children that you spit on, they're quite aware of what they're, they're going through. Dave Bowie's song, Changes, seems appropriate to describe the obstacles that many people face in various stages of education. Usually, those obstacles are unintentional. When challenges created by policies hit the same people over and over, it's fair for them to think it is deliberate. The way to prove policies are not designed to hinder people is to change them. For example, the state of Iowa rates K-12 education performance by school buildings in six categories. Last year, the lowest performing category consisted of 66 schools out of nearly 1,300. Almost all were among the poorest property valuations per student. Most had high free and reduced lunch eligibility and more English language learners than the state average. Many had a combination of all three. We've long known that social and economic status influences education outcomes. Iowa took some steps to address this in 2006, but not enough. Most states work to include such factors into their K-12 funding formulas. Iowa provided few tools with fewer resources. Instead, there was a bill last year that would have taken funds from the districts listed above while increasing funds to districts facing none of their challenges. We know that early education improves brain development, leading to both intellectual and social development. However, this requires trained professionals to implement. Those professionals need additional education, which requires tuition. Many states have set up last-dollar scholarships covering the cost of such programs. Early childhood educators in Iowa are not eligible for this opportunity. The reason is that the salary is too low. That developing the brains of young children is among the lower-paying professions says something about society. The decision that people desiring to enter the profession must then make is whether to take out a loan for that education, a loan for a job that pays too little for them to likely pay off. This is setting people up for failure. Speaking of student debt, President Biden's proposal on the topic drew criticisms from both ends of the spectrum. Forget it for a moment that it was precisely what he campaigned on. There is fair criticism that forgiving loans is bad policy, but those decrying the forgiveness of student debt didn't raise the same concern when it came to forgiving farm loans. There is fair criticism that the income eligibility is level is too high, though standards of living vary widely across the country. Unfortunately, the criticism went beyond that, to attacking the potential recipients. It has been called a slap in the face and an insult to working people. Many of the potential beneficiaries attended a community college or public university. 
I use the word attended because those who would benefit the most from loan forgiveness started but dropped out of college. They sought to improve themselves, took out a loan, and then life happened. Across higher education, 44% of those who don't complete a degree, degree end up in default, reducing their credit rating. Two-thirds of those in default owe less than $10,000. Overall, the New York Federal Bank Reserve Bank estimates the plan would eliminate debt for 40% of all borrowers. These folks are working. They are struggling to pay life's expenses, let alone the compounding interest on their student loans with ruined credit for their effort. In court filing, states opposing the Biden policy contend that it reduces state taxes. Allegedly, states can't get by without imposing taxes on the lowest income people, the working people to whom this is an insult. Impeding efforts to enhance early brain development, higher barriers for low-income K-12 students, and taxes on those scraping to get by. It may not be deliberate. As Bowie noted, those feelings spit on how on know exactly what they are going through. They may think it's time for change. And again, this was an article written by um, one of the Sioux City Journal Sunday regulars, Steve Warnstead. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 15th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to the obituaries. Robert James McDougall, 94, of Boone, Iowa, and formerly of Sergeant Bluff, passed away Sunday, January 8th at Eastern Star Masonic Home in Boone. Graveside services will be held at 12 p.m. on Tuesday at Graceland Cemetery in Sioux City. Arrangements are with the Nelson Berger Northside Chapel. Robert, also referred to as Jim, Bob, or Doug, was born in Westfield, Iowa to Edward J. and Lyda M. Lawrence McDougall on September 5, 1928. He was the youngest of six children. Jim had four sisters and a brother, all of whom have preceded him in death. Jim attended Trinity High School in Sioux City and was a standout athlete. In 1945, Jim was a member of the Mile Medley Relay Team that won a state championship. That relay team was later inducted into the Sioux City Track and Field Hall of Fame. As a young man, Jim joined the U.S. Navy and served on several ships in World War II and the Korean conflict. He served five years of active duty and two years in the reserves. He received several medals related to his service. He was a proud veteran who always spoke fondly of his Navy service. Jim married Betty Skinner on January 21, 1950 in Sioux City. They made their home in Sergeant Bluff where they raised their family. Their children are Cheryl S. McDougall of Minneapolis, Renee Montag of Boone, and Mark McDougall of Glenwood, Iowa. Jim spent the majority of his work years in the packing house industry. He was always a hard worker and a quick learner. He mastered many skills no matter where he worked, and he was already always proud of his work ethic. Jim lost his wife Betty on November 22, 2016. They had been married for 66 years at her, the time of her death. Due to health issues, Jim moved to Boone in January of 2019. He had been in failing health for several months and finally succumbed to congestive heart failure. David Lee Tick, 69, of Sioux City, was called home to God on Wednesday, January 11, 2023. Services will be at 11 a.m. on Tuesday at Wesley United Methodist Church. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Monday with a prayer service at 6 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Dave was born on August 11, 1953 in Sioux City to Duane and Aura Teak. 
He graduated from Central High School's last class in 1972. He married his high school sweetheart, Beverly Stoneberg, in 1976. They welcomed two daughters, Sarah and Abigail, who were the light of his life. In the mid-1980s, David and his brother Dennis took over their family's business, The Glass House, which they operated until it closed in 2009. At home, Dave built a workshop for his tools and used his natural affinity for design to build many things. He loved riding motorcycles, flying planes, and camping in the mountains out west. Dave held a deep faith in God and often shared it with others, sometimes through testimony, but mostly by example and generosity. In recent years, Dave found the greatest enjoyment and peace in the simplicity of time spent with his family, especially his wife, daughters, and son-in-law. Through time with Abby's cat, Paisley, he discovered a love for animals. When a sweet tabby cat started coming to the back porch daily, Dave brought her into the house and named her Puffy. She was much loved and spoiled by Dave. Dave was a beloved husband, father, brother, and friend. He was and is still so precious and so very loved by those left behind to honor his memory. John S. Adams, Jr., 71, passed away Monday, January 9th in Sioux City. Services will be held at a later date. Christy Smith Funeral Home, Morningside Chapel, is assisting the family with arrangements. John was born on November 11, 1951, in Winchester, Kansas. He grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. He spent 16 years in the United States Navy. He worked in naval shipyards for more than 30 years. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the American Red Cross. Charlie A. Neffler, Sioux City, 69, died Friday, January 13th. Arrangements are pending with the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. James W. Russ, Osage Beach, Missouri, 62, died Saturday, January 7th. Visitation will be January 20th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Richard J. Koch, 75, a rural Hubbard, Nebraska, passed away on Wednesday, December 28th, peacefully at his home. Services will be at 11 a.m. on Friday at Morin Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City, with Father Gerald Lease officiating. Burial will follow at St. John's Cemetery of St. Mary's Church in Hubbard. Visitation with family present will begin at 9 a.m. on Friday at the funeral home prior to the service. Richard was born on November 6, 1947 in Yankton, South Dakota to Cyril and Felicia Koch. He graduated from Cedar Catholic High School with the class of 1965. Richard served his country in the Army, uh, um, Army National Guard from October of 1966 until January of 1973, reaching the rank of Sergeant E-5. He married Jackie Snow on November 9, 1968, at Sacred Heart Church in Wynot, Nebraska. The couple has made Hubbard their home since 1979. Richard worked at Tyson for 53 years and has farmed since 1979. Along with farming, Richard enjoyed fishing, camping, and of course his motorcycles. He won the World of Wheels in his class in 1976 and 77 with his first place trike, Wild Thing, and he enjoyed the Sturgis rallies. Above all else, family was most important to Richard, especially his grandchildren. Melissa May Clarkson, 38, of Ponca, Nebraska, passed away Tuesday, January 10th at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. 
Services will be at 1 p.m. on Saturday at the Ponca State Park Resource and Education Center with Father Andy Solm officiating. Visitation will be from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. that day, also at the State Park, with lunch served during that time. More Funeral Home in Ponca is assisting with the arrangements. Melissa was born on August 6, 1984 in Sioux City to Ralph Don Jr. and Lori Sherber. She graduated from Laurel Concord High School in 2003 and Lamar's Beauty College. Melissa married Lee Clarkson on October 4, 2008 in Dixon, Nebraska and the couple had two beautiful children, Eli and Covey. She worked at Classic Cuts, Cost Cutters and Salon Volume in Sioux City before becoming a full-time mother. Melissa loved her family, especially, especially her children, and cherished all the gatherings and time spent with them. She liked to cook and entertain for everyone. She also enjoyed glamping and time, spending time at the lake. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Richard Thomas Dick Larson, Sioux City, 91, died Thursday, January 12th. Celebration of Life will be January 18th at 2 p.m. Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City at 4125 Orleans Avenue. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. Barbara Jane Nielsen, uh, 97, of Plainfield, Illinois, formerly of Luton, Iowa, died Monday, January 9th at Hillside Rehab and Care Center in Yorkville, Illinois. Barbara will be buried at a later date alongside her husband, Orville, at West Fork Township Cemetery in Climbing Hill, Iowa. Barbara was born July 22, 1925, in Luton, the daughter of Walter, Walton and Haley Sargasson. She was raised on a farm and graduated from Luton High School, where she excelled both academically and in girls' basketball. She continued her education at Morningside College in Sioux City. Upon acquiring her teacher credentials in 1945, she took a position teaching second grade in Manila, Iowa. She then moved to Harlan to teach, where she met fellow teacher Orville Nielsen. On July 3, 1948, Barbara and Orville were united in marriage at Grace Methodist Church in Sioux City. The couple moved to Osage in 1948, where they started their family. In 1952, the family relocated to Lamar's, Iowa, where Barbara lovingly raised three children. In 1965, Barbara took a part-time position at Hautop Jewelers in Lamar's. She was an avid bridge player and taught bridge classes at Lamar's Night School. She also worked at Krigston's Gift and Furniture in Sioux City, where she consulted in interior design. She was a, a member of St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamar's and led the Altar Guild and taught Sunday school and catechism. Barbara became a grandmother in 1981. The time spent with her children grandchildren were full of adventure and beauty. For those who knew her, Barbara was almost larger than life. She insisted to live in a purple house with purple walls and purple floors. To say she was a collector of fine treasures is an understatement. Her domestic surroundings were exquisite. In retirement, Barbara found great joy so designing for private clients and could be found sewing drapes or preparing holiday decor into the wee hours of the morning. She required little sleep, always juggling creative projects, reading novels, and playing cards. The family would like to thank the caring staff at Harbor Chase of Plainfield for the exceptional care they provided Barbara over the past two years. 
Randall K. Randy Dunlap, 70, of Sioux City, passed away from this life on Monday, January 9th, at his home. No services will be held at this time. Arrangements are with the Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Randy was born October 15, 1952, in Sioux City, the son of Richard and Dorothy Dunlap. He was the third son of eight children. Randy attended Heelan High School and graduated with a degree from Briarcliff College. He worked nights at Zenith to go to school during the day. For over 40 years, Randy worked at Tyson. He started work there because they paid well and had good benefits. He found out he liked the work and the people who worked there, which left him with many lifelong friends. In May of 1980, Randy married Sandra Schultz. They spent much of their time camping and traveling the country by motorcycle and made it to 30 Sturgis rallies. Randy will be missed at Bear Butte. When Randy and Sandra were not camping in Florida, California, Yosemite, or Yellowstone, they would camp locally. They would camp from May until October. Randy did find time to run marathons, including the Rose Bowl and the Orange Bowl. Every spring, Randy would get a call from Art Olson at Honda asking him to put together new motorcycles from the crates for the new season's bikes. He loved to ride motocross on his Suzuki along with his Yamaha and Husqvarna. Randy did not win a lot of trophies, but he did have a lot of fun. In Randy's later years, they got a sidecar unit to tour the country, which they took many trips on. He was an avid Nebraska football fan, and if they did not attend the game, they would drive down to Omaha to watch the game with like-minded fans. Dean F. Stoll, 89, of Sioux City, passed away peacefully on Tuesday, January 3rd, after fighting a great battle with many health issues. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Visitation with the family will be held one hour prior to the service. Dean was born in 1933 to Fred and Ruby Stoll. Dean lived all his life in Sioux City, graduated from East High School, was a Korean War Army veteran and retired from Mid-American Energy in 1991 after 35 years of service. He married his grade school sweetheart, Margie, and they celebrated over 50 years of marriage before her death in 2011. To this union, two daughters were born, Deanna and Deborah, deceased. Dean was a strong family man, a passionate fisherman, an exceptional wood craftsman, and a football lover. Dean and Margie received the nicknames Grandpa and Grandma Nut, and that is what their entire family called them. He was the biggest supporter of his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren in their accomplishments in life. He instilled a great work ethic in them to help them succeed. He was the entire family superhero and the heart, soul, and rock of his family. Minnesota became the entire family's happy place. First was a cabin they built in Clitheroe Lake, where his children and grandchildren grew up loving Minnesota lake life. In the later years, it was Bonnie Beach Resort on the same lake. Dean was so proud to be able to teach his entire family how to fish, which was his favorite activity in life. Each year in June, the entire family would be at their happy place together to enjoy family time with him and compete to see who would catch the biggest fish. In lieu of flowers, the family requests you make a donation to one of the following, Sioux City Gospel Mission or the Saturday in the Park Festival. Susan K. Hanek-Klaus, 70, of Haywarden, passed away Wednesday, January 11th at Hillcrest Health Care Center in Haywarden, surrounded by her family. 
Services will be at 11 a.m. on Tuesday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel in Sioux City. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service. Interment will be at a later date. Susan was born in Sioux City to William and Marion MacArthur on November 2, 1952. She attended school in Sioux City. After high school, she married Harry Hankalas on March 17, 1971. They went on to have four sons. She worked in the manufacturing industry for many years, obtaining employment at IBP Su Supreme Packing and Quality Park Products. Susan loved to crochet in her free time, making many items for family members. She also loved listening to music, with her favorite being Elvis. Spending time with family, especially her grandkids, was one of her greatest joys. Susan was an animal lover as well. Bernie uh, Bernard Philip Bernie McBride, 87, of rural Smithland, passed away on Friday, January 6, at a Sioux City hospital. Services will be at 7 p.m. on Thursday at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel in Sioux City. The family will greet friends from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday at the funeral home. Graveside services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Friday at Little Sioux Township Cemetery in Smithland. Bernard Philip, the son of Bernard F. and Hazel McBride, were born, was born July 13, 1935, in Sioux City. In his early years, Bernie lived in several different locations due, his, due to his dad serving in the United States Navy. Bernie graduated from Central High School in Sioux City, then attended Morningside College for one year. He joined the United States Marine Corps and served until his honorable discharge. On October 11, 1958, Bernie was united in marriage to Joyce Brecky of St. Paul's Lutheran at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sioux City. This union was blessed with two sons, Mike and Doug. The family made their home in Sioux City, and Bernie worked for an optical company for nine years, then worked at Terra for 32 years, retiring as a superintendent in 1998. In 2000, Bernie and Joyce moved from Sioux City to an acreage near Smithland. Joyce passed away on February 11, 2018. Bernie was a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sioux City, then St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Mapleton. He was also a member of the Smithland American Legion. His hobbies included hunting, fishing, camping, horses, woodworking, and taking care of the 80-acre farm. Jennifer K. LaCroix, Sioux City, 49, died Saturday, December 31st. Services will be January 21st at 10.30 a.m. at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at the Calvary Cemetery. Visitation is one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. Jared A. Robinson, 35, of Quimby and formerly of Kingsley, passed away Thursday, January 12th. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday at First Lutheran Church in Kingsley. There will be a private burial. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Sunday with family present and a prayer service at 7 p.m. all at the Road Funeral Home in Kingsley. Jared Allen Robinson was born July 3, 1987 in Lamars, Iowa to Dave and Deb Dickman Robinson. Jared grew up in Kingsley, participating in sports while attending Kingsley Pearson School. Jared worked at Dusky's Restaurant in Kingsley, Pearson Elevator, and Hy-Vee Wirehouse in Cherokee, Iowa. Jared was a proud dad of two boys, Lincoln and Johnny. He was a big Nebraska Huskers fan, like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Atlanta Braves. Christine Ann Ayers, 62, of Sioux City, passed away unexpectedly at her home on Wednesday, January 11th. 
Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10 a.m. on Wednesday at St. Boniface Catholic Church in Sioux City, with Father Andrew Giles officiating. Burial will follow at the Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel with family present at 6 and a vigil at 7 p.m. Christine was born on February 14, 1960 in Sioux City, the daughter of Robert and Diane Rose Bachman. Christine graduated from West High School, Sioux City, in 1978. In February 1980, she married Mark Ayers Sr. in Sioux City, and they were blessed with two children, Melanie and Mark. Christine had a very strong and dedicated work ethic and had been employed at numerous jobs, including floral designer at Vans Florist, office service manager at Gateway, office supervisor at for Labor Ready, and office manager at Carroll Supply Company, all in the Sioux City area. Although Christine always showed her professional demeanor at work, she was known for her exuberant personality with children and friends. She prided herself in the art of baking, well known for her chocolate chip cookies, and always tried to treat everyone to their favorite dessert. Her love for vacationing in Nokoboji with her family was well known and always her highlight event each year. Dr. Leslie Les Hemmingson Lamars, 82, died Thursday, January 12th. Services will be January 21st at 11 a.m. at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamars. Visitation will be January 20th from 2 to 7 p.m. at Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars and resumes one hour prior to service time at the church. And that is it for the obituaries. I will now move to some sports stories. Sioux City Musketeers score 4-1 over Omaha. Controlling the game from start to finish, the Sioux City Musketeers cruised to a 4-1 win over rival Omaha Friday night. Sioux City scored first at the 13-13 mark of the opening period when Ryan Comney threw a shot just inside the blue line on net and snuck its way through traffic. The Musketeers padded their lead late in the second period at the 15-42 marker. Max Strand picked a Lancer's pocket and then beat Omaha netminder Kevin Pashi high blocker side to hand Sioux City a 2-0 lead. Halfway through the third at 10:51, Ben Portress stole a puck from an Omaha defenseman near the blue line. After Caden Shahan on a breakaway was turned aside by Pash, Portress finished the play and punched the puck over the goal line to give the Muskies a 3-0 lead. At the 12.09 point of the third, Strand dished a perfect pass to Tyler Hodson in front of the net mouth. Hodson finished the play for his 10th goal of the season, and Sioux City took a commanding 4-0 lead. Omaha evaded the goose egg on their side of the scoreboard with a Charlie Lurie goal at the 16.47 mark of the final period. It was Lurie's 10th goal of the season. Of his 10, six have come against the Sioux City Musketeers. Axel Mangbo earned his ninth victory of the season with a 30-save effort, allowing only the lone shot to get past him. Kevin Pashe stopped 24 of 28 shots in his defeat. Neither team found any success on the man advantage with all the goals scored at full strength. The Musketeers went 0 of 2, Omaha was 0 of 4. The Musketeers 14-11-2-3 returned home Saturday to face the Fargo Force. Results of that match were too late for the journal's print deadline. Dort women beat Briar Cliff to stay atop the GPAC standings. 
Holding on to sole possession of the top spot in the GPAC conference, the Dort women's basketball team secured an 87-77 win over second place Briarcliff on Saturday. Carly Gustafson led three defenders in double-figure scoring with a game-high 29 points. The senior forward also pulled down a game-high 9 rebounds. Bailey Beckman added 18 points and Janie Schoonhoven chipped in with 12 as number three ranked Dort moved its record to 11-1 in the Great Plains Athletic Conference and 17-1 overall. Connor Sudman's 22 points led three Briarcliff players in double-figure scoring on the road Saturday. Kennedy Benn added 18 points and Peyton Wingard had 10 points and a team-high 8 rebounds. The defenders jumped out to 30-18 first quarter lead, but the Chargers cut the advantage to 47-38 at halftime. With the loss, Briarcliff dropped out of the second spot in the G-Pack. The Chargers fell to 8-3 in the league, a half game behind Northwestern, which beat Midland 84-51 Saturday to get to 8-2 in the conference. Morningside Men 76, Doan 62. Eli Doble scored 19 points to lead the Morningside Men to a G-Pack victory at home Saturday. Joey Scoff added 16 points, and Trey Powers and Aiden Vanderloo had 10 each for the number 20 ranked Mustangs who improved to 14-3 overall. With the win, Morningside remained in first place in the conference with an 8-2 mark, a game better than second place Jamestown and Northwestern. Northwestern defeated Midland 87-66 Saturday, while Jamestown edged Concordia 69-65 Saturday. Now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, my husband and I have been married 45 years. We are both retired and have hobbies to keep us busy. My problem is, he has so many friends that he doesn't have time for any of the things I would like us to do together. I seem to be the last person he wants to do anything with. I don't mind some time alone, but after a while I feel lonely and left behind. If a vacation is planned, it's always planned around his schedule. Signed, Lonely in Minnesota. Abby's response. Could you possibly develop an interest in any of the hobbies your husband enjoys? That way you could be alone less of the time. If that's not possible, tell him you are unhappy and the current arrangements make you feel lonely and isolated. Too much time alone isn't healthy. If he's willing to do some compromising, your problem is solved. However, if he is inflexible, you will have to find more activities to fill your time than involve, that involve other people. Dear Abby, my husband and I have two close friends. They are a married couple, but now in the middle of a nasty divorce. Last winter, while they were still together, they came over and brought along an outdoor heater for us to borrow. It broke while it was in our care, so we bought them a new one. They knew it is, was in our garage, but they never came to pick it up. Backstory, he cheated in his keeping their house. She kept a lot of the indoor-outdoor items, some over his objection. My husband called him last weekend to remind him again to pick it up. Coincidentally, today she asked me for it and wants to come and get it ASAP and beat him to it. In all fairness, I don't know who it should go to. I hate being in the middle and I hate confrontations. My husband feels it should go to the husband because he called and reminded him. What should we do? Caught in the middle. Abby's response. Give these former spouses a deadline after which you want that heater off your property. Whichever one gets there first can have it. Do not involve yourself further. 
Dear Abby, there is a man I may be attracted to and have a lot in common. The problem is that his teeth are crooked and yellow and I can't get past that. He's quite a bit older than I am so I'm not sure that we would get together even if he got his teeth fixed. But I won't know unless something is done. I'm not someone who likes confrontation so I'm having a hard time saying something. How do I deal with this problem? Sign, frowning over his smile. And the response, it would be appropriate to wait until you are sure you are attracted to this person. Then, if you decide you are, talk to him at a time when you are both relaxed. Smile and say something like this. You know, John, you are such an attractive person. Perhaps you should consider talking to your dentist about having a little work done. If you did, you'd be an absolute Adonis. His response should reveal if there is a path forward together or give him something to chew on. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, January 15th. I'm Dagna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.